our text this morning, Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 is different than Mark. We're taking a turn here for the Christmas uh, season for what we might call Advent. The uh, first four Sundays or last four Sundays leading up to Christmas, we celebrate Advent. We have candles. We do scripture reading. And here at Sunset Bible Church, we have our tradition of talking about some of the mountaintops of the Bible. Some of the highlights, the hallmarks, the pinnacles of God's interaction with man. And this year, we get to start that cycle anew. We get to start at the beginning not Genesis, but rather Abraham, Abraham's story. When God began to work with man in a very individual way over a long course of history, as we'll see in this morning's sermon. But this follows a seven-year cycle. Last year, we talked about heaven. That was the first one I got to be a part of. And what a joy to reflect on what heaven will be like. But this year, we get to start with heaven. Next year would be Ruth. And then the year after that, David, the exile, the birth of Christ, the church age, and then again, heaven. This gives us the opportunity to see all of God's action, to pause and reflect on how Christmas, and you might say its eventual uh, result, Easter, fits into the scope of God's interaction with us. This year we begin the story again with Abraham. God's intervention in the history of mankind after creation, the fall, and the flood takes a personal and relational term turn in our passage. God chooses an unlikely man and makes him a promise that will bless the whole world. So with that, let's jump into our text. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 is our focus this morning. But I want us to sort of get a little character, a little flavor of who Abraham is. So let's start up at verse 31 of chapter 11. Verse 31 of chapter 11 reads like this, and it says, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house into the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Let us pray. Father, I want to thank you for the kindness of your heart in reaching out to human humanity. Lord, I want to thank you because you have reached out to us. In this moment, in, in this place, Lord, your word has been read and, and your kindness is on display. As we reflect upon it this morning, I ask that you would give us grace to understand you better, to remember and reflect upon your character. Lord, we ask that you would bless uh, Central uh, Grace Community uh, Temple and Sunset here as we all are uh, opening God's word at this very hour that you would give us all grace to hear your word and those who are speaking to speak with wisdom and clarity. Lord, support us now in this endeavor of understanding you. In Jesus' name, amen. A promise kept is something to celebrate. This morning we're talking about God keeps all his promises, but what of promises in our own lives, in our own day? What about those promises? 
A promise kept is something to celebrate. We celebrate the making of promises. We celebrate um, promises that are kept in the idea of we respect men or women's character who keep promises. If you're a man or a woman that's known for keeping your promises, that's something you can't buy. That's something you earn through years of being faithful to what you say. But even in, the, in this world in which there are men and women who are, are known for keeping their promises, we still fall short of being able to guarantee certainty. We still fall short of being able to guarantee what will happen next. We sh- still fall short of being able to be perfect or to be able to control perfect our world into being perfect. We all wish the certainty and trust could be purchased. If I could purchase for the next month certainty that what I want to happen for Christmas would happen, I'd probably put some money on that, and I think probably most of us would. Or if I could purchase the fact that all the promises that I've made and all the promises that people have made to me that I like um, would stand and that they would hold and that we could trust in them for a month, for a week, that would be valuable. We would be interested in that, I think. We'd all be interested in investing in that. But the reality is, is we can't. Our ability to guarantee anything is only as strong as our ability to do that, and that, we know, falls short. None of us will live forever. None of us is perfect. And none of us is surrounded by a perfect world that can support us in that. In that. We have to rely on our God who keeps us and walks with us. <clears throat> Many people will look at Christians and they will say they are weak. They rely upon God as a crutch because God helps them through life, or at least that's what they think as the accusation goes. But I want us to think this morning as Christians about the the character and the foundation of God. You see, God has been faithful to his promises for thousands of years, 4,000 years in the case of Abraham. 4,000 years ago, God stepped into Abraham's life and he made Abraham a promise, and God hasn't stopped keeping that promise. That's better than any book you can buy at Barnes & Noble that was penned in the last year. God is a faithful God. He's not a crutch. He is a faithful God. He is a faithful creator. So now as we look at our text, I want us to see that God keeps all his promises. He doesn't let a single one drop. This morning, sort of a a schedule of how we're going to work through this is is God's promise to Abraham is our first point, how we'll we'll meditate on the text of uh, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Then we'll look to God's promises remembered. And God's promises remembered, I want to see how the Bible reflects on what God's done with Abraham. You see, from Abraham to Christ is about 2,000 years worth of history. And in that time, God's people writing God's word reflect on what God did with Abraham. Then in the last one, God's promises do not change. I want us to reflect on the fact that the most important promise, perhaps for us this morning, has not changed. Nothing changes God's promises. So God's promise to Abraham. Take your text with me. Genesis chapter 12 starts with like this, and it says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So who is this Abram guy? 
who is this Abram individual that the Bible is talking about? Well, we don't have a lot of information yet. We're going to get more. There's several chapters in Genesis that will talk about Abraham's character. But the introduction is, starts back in verse 27, or rather 26, and it, it gives us his genealogy. It tells us who his, his, his dad was. His dad was Terah. It tells him his names of his two brothers, Nahor and Haran. And it tells us that Haran died, and Nahor married Haran's daughter. So somebody marrying somebody's, your brother's daughter, is not cool in America. It's against the law. And it wasn't cool according to the law that Moses gave either. This is something that we do not see as respectable in our culture. Perhaps it was passable in, in Abram's culture. But as we look at Abram's life, I think we have to realize that Abram comes from stock that's not perfect. Abram comes from a tradition of family that isn't perhaps uh, someone we'd pick for the best office or the most respectable office. But in verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, It is the Lord who chooses to step into Abram's life. Now I've been saying Abram, I've been saying Abraham. Later in Abram's life, God will change his name to Abraham. So we're going to use those terms interchangeably. God will call Abraham and he'll say, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. One thing we see here is that Abraham has been traveling with members of his extended family. This is very important both today and in that time. Family was incredibly important. This Christmas will reflect on the importance of family. Sometimes it's challenging, sometimes it's exciting, but family will be on our minds, no doubt. But in Abram's day, family was important all year long because you lived with your extended family, you slept with your extended family, you worked with your extended family. This was not uh, grand, going to see the grandparents in another state. It was the grandparents are eating breakfast with you every year for your whole life as long as they're alive. This was very close. Um, Abram is being asked to leave all that. He's being asked by God to leave all that for a land that is promised. He says, into the land that I will show you. He's not even given the land or told where that land will be, but he's called out to this land. A commentator uh, on scripture and things of the, of, of the Lord writing in the first century AD, um, is that the, the work is entitled First Clement, reflects on Abraham's call and he says this. He says, Abraham who was called the friend, was found faithful when he became obedient to the words of God. He obediently went forth from his country, from his people, and from his father's house, leaving a small country, a weak people, and an insignificant house in order that he might inherit the promise of God. This gentleman writing this letter is reflecting back on the history of the Old Testament, what has happened to Abraham and his people but Abraham, sitting in that tent, reflecting on what God has just said, had not seen the course of history. All he can see is that God has called him to leave his family, his country, and his father's house, and to go to a land not yet identified. This decision Abraham faces is further uh, complicated or expanded by what God says in verse 2. He says, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. 
So God has promised a land, this future land that he will go to, that I will show you. He's going to make them a great nation. This is talking about descendants, making many descendants. And he says, you will be a blessing. Further down in verse, end of verse three, he'll say, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so here we have three promises that God has given Abraham. You might say land, descendants, and blessing. So I want us to think about our world today. Today, we, if you read the news this morning, as it's been since October 7th, Israel is currently at war with Hamas and with Gaza. People are dying on both sides. It's very tragic. It's very sad to see these headlines. But in the midst of this, it highlights the fact that there is indeed a land called Israel, and there indeed is a people called the people of Israel. This, we're not talking about biblical history 4,000 years ago when Abraham was alive. We're talking about 2023. In the midst of all the carnage of war, we can see that God is still keeping his promises. You see, the people of Israel are the descendants of Abraham. Abraham will have a son named Isaac, who will have a son named Jacob, and Jacob will have 12 sons, and his, God will change Jacob's name to Israel. And that's where we get the, t- the title of Israel. And his 12 sons will form the nation of Israel. And those people, generation after generation, all the way back to Abraham, are still with us today. We refer to them around the world as the Jewish people. And they are living in the land that God gave them. The land that stretches from the Mediterranean Sea to Jordan, north to Syria, and south to Egypt. It is not 1948 and the declaration of the UN that gives them this land. Here in our passage this morning, we have God giving them this land. The fact that there is a people of Israel in the land of Israel refers and reflects the fact that God is being faithful to his promises. There are many other aspects and complications and things that work in this story and in the world and in the news. But nevertheless, the reality that there is a people of Israel on the land shows us that God keeps his promises. And if you're going to have a land, you have to have people to fill it. And therefore, God has also promised that there will be descendants. And those descendants have come all the way down to us, as we just talked about. So if God is able and capable for 4,000 years to keep his promise to keep his promise that there will be a land and that there will be descendants, then we must ask ourselves the question, is God faithful to give us also and to keep also his promise to Abraham that there would be a blessing? Specifically, when he says at the end of verse 3, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Is God able to keep that promise also? And my argument this morning, and I think the text of Scripture is going to argue very firmly, is yes, God is capable of making that promise and keeping it. So is this a mountaintop? This is an interaction with Abram, a new character on the scene of Scripture. Is this a mountaintop in the story of of the Scripture? Is this something worthy of our focus? How do we think about God's character? How do we think about the promises that God has said to us? Well, this takes us to the second point we have here, which is that God's promises are remembered. And if you have your sermon notes with you this morning, I've, I've copied out some passages of Scripture here. So if you don't want to turn with me, you can just follow along in your notes, or you can look at your, look at the text of scripture as well. But if you look at the first one, it says, God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham. 
These are the words of Joseph, the son of Jacob, or Israel, as God will change his name. And Jake, or rather, Joseph is about to pass away, and he is trusting in the promises given to Abraham. Let's read that whole passage, in his, which, uh, verses 24 and 25. It says, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of the, this land to the land that he swore to Abram, to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Joseph is so confident, so confident in the character of God and his promise to Abraham that he gives instruction about his very bones. He wants to be buried in the land that God has promised his, his great-great-grandfather, Abram. He wants to be in that land. His bones will indeed go to that land. So here we see that Joseph, remembering God's promise to Abraham, places strong confidence in it. This is instructive for us. Brothers and sisters, as we reflect on God's promise this morning, we too can place strong confidence like Joseph did. Next, I want us to see how the story continues to unfold for the people of Israel. Joseph will, will die having won favor with Pharaoh, and the people of Israel will be treated unfairly in the coming years. Some 400 years later, our story will start up again in the book of Exodus. And in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, God speaks, or rather Moses speaks about God and his thoughts on this matter. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of of Israel, and God knew. You see, not only can Joseph trust in God's promise, but God himself remembers the promise that he made. 400 years later, God remembers that he made a covenant with Isaac and with Jacob and with Abraham. God remembers that promise. He remembers that he had made a covenant with them, that he would make them a blessing, that he would give them a land, and that he would give Abraham many descendants. And so he sees and he knows God is not a God who is up in heaven distracted by something else. God is a God who sees us. God is a God who sees what's going on in our life and responds. God does not forget his words and his promises. He saw the plight of Abraham's descendants and acted. God's faithfulness kept the promise of land, descendants, and blessing alive. The flame, the hope that a blessing would come did not end because God acted. Next, I want us to turn to Exodus 3. Just a few chapters and perhaps even a few minutes or a few years later in the story. And God is going to speak to Abraham, rather to Moses, and he's going to say, this is my name. Moses is going to ask, if I go to the people of Israel, who do I say you are? In Egypt, they have many gods. Are you, are you, you, they could say, well, which one of the Egyptian gods is this? Or who is this God you're talking about? Moses is asking, I think what we could say is a legitimate question. And God responds and says, I am that I am. And then he says something else. And that's where our passage starts this morning. 
Chapter 3, verse 15 says, God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. If there was ever a passage to base the idea of us spending time this morning remembering the promises of God and his faithfulness to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the promise that he made to them, this would be it. God has called the people of Israel to remember what God has done, specifically what he has done with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God wants us to remember him by his actions towards Abraham and his descendants. Therefore, the story of Abraham is essential to knowing God. Many of us would like for people to understand us better. Perhaps there's a relationship where this is playing out right now. You would like for people to think about who you are and what you know and what you understand and what you do and not to have their own opinion about you. God here is speaking specifically, and he's saying, this is who I am. And when God speaks about who he is, it is the best that we listen to him. And in doing that, we also find that there's much hope, because a promise-keeping God is a God that we can trust in. Let's fast forward the tape a little bit to the beginning of the New Testament. The book of Matthew, I believe, is the first gospel to be written. In all the ancient manuscripts, it is always placed first in the order. And so the first verse of the New Testament, you might say, is verse 1, 1 of Matthew. And that reads, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew finds it important to connect Abraham to Jesus. Why? Why is it so important for Abraham to be seen as the father of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, as we sang about this morning? Well, let's explore that. Matthew begins the New Testament by presenting Abraham as the father of Jesus by many generations of God's faithfulness. It is in Jesus that all the families of the world are blessed. Let's expand that a little bit more. Jesus is related to Abraham, so he's in that family line. It's, so you can say through Jesus that the whole world could be blessed, but we could have said about that about every other person in the line between Jesus and Abraham. But specifically, the Bible is going to begin to focus and hone in on the fact that Jesus is a fulfillment of that blessing. You see, if God can keep that promise of land, that promise of descendants, God can also keep that promise of blessing. And here in the New Testament, we see that begin to unfurl. As we look at this last, our last point, that God's promises do not change, I want us to turn to the book of Galatians. Turn with me to Galatians chapter uh, 3. This is a huge change. Going from Genesis, 2,000 years before Christ, to shortly after Christ's death in about 40 AD, uh, Paul will write probably one of the first books that he'll pen that becomes part of the, the Bible, the book of Galatians. He's writing it to the area of Galatia within the modern state of Turkey, probably the, uh, the eastern side. And he's writing there and he's saying, uh, he's confronting them because they've departed from the true gospel. 
They departed from what Paul had preached to them. Let's grasp, get a little character of what Paul's thoughts about this whole departure are. If you look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. We fast forward to chapter 3. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly betrayed as crucified. So you can see Paul has some, a little bit of emotion here behind some of the words he's saying. This is a big deal for Paul, that these people have departed. This is not a small matter. This is not the color of the carpet. This is not what we have, uh, kind of coffee we have. This is a bread and butter, a foundational issue for Paul, that what they've gotten wrong has to be corrected. Let's look at verse 2 of chapter 3, which says, Let me ask you only this. So one question he has for them. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So there we have it, the contrast, the confrontation. Paul is arguing against the law and arguing for faith as the means by which they receive the Spirit. This is not necessarily to get rid of the law, but to say that the Spirit doesn't come because we keep laws. The Spirit comes because we believe through faith. Now, Abraham's interaction with faith will be the topic of another sermon this this holiday as we talk about Abraham. But specifically here, I want to focus on what Paul says about Abraham in verse 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, Paul writes. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel the good news beforehand to Abraham saying, and here's the connection, and you shall all the nations be blessed. Paul is connecting the promise to Abraham 2,000 years earlier that God made to Christ's coming, that Christ, the one who we believe in, the one who we place our faith in that gives us the spirit, that Christ is the gospel that was proclaimed to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. God keeps his promises. The promised blessing has arrived. Brothers and sisters, most of us this morning are not of descendants of Abraham by blood, but we are recipients of the blessing of Abraham's children in Christ. We have received the blessing of Christ through our faith in the one who died for our sins. You see, Christ came. He walked this earth as sinless life. That, that person who was perfectly trustworthy that we've never met, this wasn't a politician. This isn't um, anything like that. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who, in his, who became one of us at Christmas. That's what we celebrate. It's that God has seen us and he stepped into our world through his Son. Christ lives a perfect life dies on our behalf, and God raises him from the dead. This, this is the hope that we have. This is the means by which the blessing that Abraham was told of has come to us. That in Christ, we have hope that we can be reconciled with God. Paul recalls God's promise of blessing to Abraham and his descendants and declares this to be the gospel or good news. The book of Galatians is a defense of the true gospel. Paul is not messing around. 
God's reputation and promise to Abraham is the message Paul is proclaiming. You see, brothers and sisters, we have a message that is, is made traction in our own life, has caused us to believe in Jesus Christ. And we have a message, as that song goes, to tell to the nations. And it's none other than the, telling the faithfulness of the God who made a promise to Abraham. God, through his, his, his writer Paul, will continue to expound upon this, this our relationship of Abraham in our current situation in verses 15 through 18. And I'd like to read those to us. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And let us be grateful and reflect upon the reality that God keeps all his promises. God did not waver in his keeping the descendants of Israel around even to this present day. He has not wavered in that promise. He has in recent years, the last hundred years, brought the people of Israel back into their land. A testimony. It's not a random people. It's the people of Israel. And we, this morning, have our Bibles in our hands and we have a faith in our hearts that God has given us that testifies to the fact that Abraham's seed, his descendant, Jesus Christ, indeed has been a blessing to the whole world. We've seen that God can indeed keep all his promises. God is a faithful God, a God that in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our joys, and even in the midst of our celebration of Christmas, we can reflect on the fact that God is faithful day in and day out for thousands of years. This is no mere crutch or excuse for getting together on Christmas Eve and lighting candles. This is a world of promise-keeping by a faithful God. This is our foundation. Let us pray. Father, you are a God who indeed does care about us. Like you saw the people of Israel under slavery and you saw, and as the Bible says, you knew. You knew their suffering and their anguish and you kept your promise. Lord, we are grateful that you have striven or strived after keeping that promise through all these years, that you have not wavered, you have not changed, and you have been certain and, and faithful in keeping it. Lord, thank you that we can trust in this promise that there will yet be a day when hope will shine and you will, be, will come again. Your promise will be kept, that the completion of that blessing will echo all around the world without hindrance. Lord, we thank you for your kindness. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning is a communion Sunday. We have the opportunity to reflect upon the, the death of Christ, upon his, the future hope of him coming. And in, in doing that, in light of this morning's message and the promise-keeping nature of our God, I'd like us to reflect on Matthew chapter 26, verses 27, and uh, I believe it's 29. 
in Matthew's gospel, Matthew records Jesus' words when he says, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then he says this, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. If we look at our world and, and more importantly, look at the text, the text of Scripture and the promises of God and the promise-keeping nature of God, and we think about the fact that Jesus is indeed God, very God, in this moment sitting in that room some 2,000 years ago, and he makes us promise that he won't drink this again until he's with us again in my Father's kingdom, we can take two conclusions away from this. One, that Jesus is coming back. If, if there's ever a person to trust about what he'll do in the future, it's God. He's demonstrated that year after year as he's kept his promises. The other thing we can see is that this is also relational. God wants to see us again. He wants to sit and have a meal with us. That calm, collected God who saw the suffering of God's people in the book of Exodus still is in the business of wanting to be with people even to this day. He's looking forward to a meal shared with all of us. You all may come at this time. As they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat this is my body. Let us eat this in remembrance of him. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let us do this in remembering him as well. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your kindness in sending Jesus and allowing us to be recipients of the blessing that you promised Abraham. Thank you, Lord, that you are faithful, that you are keeping your promises. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us real things in your word and in our world to look at that reflects your faithful kindness to us. Lord, I ask that you, as we go this week, that you would be with each one of us, that we would be able to keep the knowledge of you close at hand as we confront our world, the joys and the triumphs and the sadness and whatever else we may face. Each day, Lord, I ask that you would give us grace to walk faithfully and to be uh, ever mindful of the message that you have given us through Abraham. Lord, thank you for, again for your kindness in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.